Welcome to the Mind and Matter podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today my guest is Dr. Nathan Price. Nathan's PhD is in bioengineering, and he has been faculty at the University of Washington and the Institute of Systems Biology in Seattle. He was also CEO of the health intelligence startup Longevity, which recently merged with Thorn Health Tech, which he is now chief science officer of. Nathan and I discussed various topics in the realm of personalized medicine, digital phenotyping, and systems biology, including things like metabolism and blood sugar monitoring, the microbiome and diet, aging and longevity, and more. We talked about the basic biology of those things, as well as some of the different emerging technologies related to health monitoring. If you're interested in health and wellness generally, especially using new technologies and the latest science for health optimization, this will be an interesting episode for you. As always, if you enjoy the content you find on this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. You can sign up. You can become a subscriber for my free weekly Mind and Matter newsletter on Substack. You can become a patron on Patreon, and you can also give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. All of those things are definitely appreciated and, and help the podcast grow. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Nathan Price. Nathan Price, thank you for joining me. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Nick. Can you start off by just telling everyone who you are and what your background is, what you're working on today? Yeah. So, um, so I'm Nathan Price. I have a PhD in bioengineering uh, from the University of California at San Diego. I've been working as a scientist for uh, about, um, well, about 15 years that I've run an independent lab. Uh, first was an assistant professor at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, uh, then moved from there and uh, became a professor and associate director at the Institute for Systems Biology in Seattle, uh, the last several years of which I co-directed with uh, Lee Hood, 
uh, the Hood Price Lab for Integrated uh, Biomedicine. And so we've worked on um, systems biomedicine, I should say. Uh, and then about a year ago, I moved to become CEO of Longevity, uh, which it, uh, was a startup that was co-founded by a real good friend of mine, Joel Dudley, as well as uh, Chris Mason at Cornell, uh, which really focused on AI and health. Uh, we then merged that company together with another company called Thorn to form a company called Thorn Health Tech, which we took public a couple of months ago. Uh, and then I'm moving now uh, with the merger to become chief science officer for Thorn Health Tech and uh, running the science as we're trying to build uh, what we call a big integrated uh, scientific wellness company. And uh, so that's a little bit about me. Uh, I also uh, work in uh, uh, just trying to push forward a number of things in a few national uh, groups. Um, I serve on something called the Board on Life Sciences for the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, and uh, do a number of things to try to you know, keep a foothold in academia while um, uh, primarily uh, now moving into the, uh, into the business world and running science from that side. So you mentioned something called systems biology. What is systems biology or systems medicine? Yeah, so systems biology is... is uh, really about how do you take the pieces that we've identified in biology and how do they operate together as a whole so that the properties that come out of that are you know, more than the sum of the parts. So it's really kind of a yin and yang with molecular biology that you know, went into biology and kind of figured out all the pieces, right? What is a gene? What is a protein, et cetera? Uh, then in systems biology, it's really about getting into omics, which is, all right, what now we can measure all of the genes right? through the Human Genome Project. We can measure all the proteins. How do they operate together in a system to give us life? And that's what systems biology is really about. Interesting. There's a couple other terms that I want to ask you about that, that I've been hearing more and that <clears throat> I've read in association, in association with your work and, and with other people's work. So that's systems medicine. How do, the, how do all the parts we've identified work together? There's also digital phenotyping and then this notion of personalized medicine. So, so what do those things mean and how does this all start to kind of tie together? Yeah, a lot, a lot of new terms. Uh, so personalized medicine, and we actually talk a lot about uh, something we call P4 medicine, which is a little bit broader, which is predictive, preventive, personalized, and participatory. And so when we talk about that form of medicine, what we're really uh, talking about is one, a shift more towards uh, being able to anticipate problems. And we'll talk more about it, uh, uh, even a different concept uh, called scientific wellness, maybe in a little bit. So we want medicine that's predictive, right? So anticipatory of something that might go wrong that you don't want to go wrong, preventive, right? How do you stop those things from happening? Personalized in the sense that, especially as you're thinking about chronic disease, uh, that has their very diverse paths into chronic disease. And it's, um, you know, the medical term idiopathic, right? But it's very specific to the individual. And so you want to be very personalized. And then participatory is where we think about how do you empower people with knowledge so that they can really incorporate into their lives, um, you know, some of the deep science that has been developed so they can make an impact on their health. Uh, and then you also asked about, I think, digital phenotyping. <laughs> Uh, we use two terms and I'll bring it up. So one digital phenotyping is really what can you do in the digital space to monitor your health? So this wearables is kind of the most obvious example of that. And then we also have a concept that we refer to as deep phenotyping, 
which can include all that information from wearables, but it also goes through all those kind of omics data. So you get your genome done, you're looking at your proteome and your microbiome and your metabolome and, and just starting to generate a lot of that kind of data, which is just now really happening in the research space primarily, although some of it is now available to people, but you go in and try to understand in some depth a lot of these systems that we just couldn't profile until quite recently. Mm-hmm. So maybe to start to talk about this and think about this, um, we can talk about something like blood sugar regulation. So I think everyone knows, you know, knows about sugar at, at a very high level. We know that our blood sugar is probably tightly regulated. Most people do. Um, a lot of us probably know some with diabetes where that part of our metabolism is not functioning the right way. And you know, you're even starting to see now um, glucose monitoring tools, not just for diabetics, but for everyday people that want to start doing this sort of digital phenotyping, personalized medicine stuff. So before we get into some of that, can you just give us like a metabolism 101 here for blood sugar regulation? Sure. Um, so yeah, for blood sugar reg- uh, regulation, the, the primary idea is that Turns out your body is very sensitive to the amount, to the concentration of glucose that's coming into your system or that it's, it exists in your system. And so what happens is that as your glucose levels build up, uh, your body secretes a hormone uh, called insulin that uh, suppresses the glucose levels. And so you've got this control system in your body that's always trying to get you back to a baseline. So if you eat a big meal, right, your glucose will spike up, your insulin will come up. Uh, will lower your glucose until you come back to a steady state. Uh, and conversely, if you, you know, if your blood sugar goes low, you know, then it will release um, uh, um, stores of uh, glycogen so that you can get your glucose uh, back up. And so you've just got a control system like that uh, in your body. Everyone does, unless you're, unless you're type one diabetic, in which case you don't make insulin and that's the problem. Okay. So that's basically that's basically what diabetes is. You don't have the insulin there. And so you're not able to bring back down blood sugar levels like a normal there's, person. There's two types, two types of diabetes. So there's, uh, there's type one diabetes, which uh, generally means that you don't have the ability to make insulin. Uh, it could be likely a genetic um, uh, defect, a you know, missing piece that you can't do that. And so that's why, you know, diabetics have to walk around and, you know, and, and poke themselves with insulin and, and watch that carefully because they essentially have to take on the role of regulating their own blood sugar. Um, you know, one of my best friends in high school is diabetic. So, you know, I know he's gone through that, uh, you know, for a long time as have you know, many, many people. Uh, and then uh, the trend, what, what was the other question? Uh, the, um, well, what, can you oh, and type two diabetes. I'm sorry. Type two, yeah, yeah. Type one diabetes, you have no insulin. Type two diabetes is a little bit different. So, type two diabetes means that you lose your sensitivity to insulin. So, you have the ability to make it. It's in there genetically, mm-hmm. but that's more triggered by environmental factors. So, if you, so one of the big problems is if you're in an environment. You know, where you're not getting enough exercise, you're eating too many really high sugary foods that we have, you know, processed foods that we have now, you put a lot of stress on that system. So if you're always swamping it with, you know, with massive amounts of sugar, your body, and so it means you're flooding your system with insulin. And as you do that over the years and decades, your body becomes less sensitive to insulin. And there is, 
some debate about the exact mechanisms of that and so forth. But at a high level, you become resistant to, um, responsive to that insulin. Uh, there's also this notion that certain cells just become so full of sugar that they can't react to the insulin. You know, there's mm -hmm. a couple of different modes of thought about what it means to be insulin resistant. Uh, and so that becomes a problem. And so then someone develops type two diabetes because they gradually get worse at being able to deal with sugar. And as they cross a threshold, then they become diabetic because they just, their insulin system doesn't operate as it needs to, and they lose the ability to control their own blood sugar. Hmm. So how important is prevention here in the context of the reversibility of this? Is, is this something that is reversible for type two diabetes? It certainly is reversible in the early stages. So prevention is an area that I'm super interested in and uh, and, you know, we can get into, you know, a lot of the big studies we've done around this, but it, diabetes is a great example because not only can we think about reversal of of type two diabetes, but there's also what's called pre-diabetes. So you can monitor. So if you're measuring, you know, out of your blood, you can monitor, uh, well, you can wear these days, like a continuous glucose monitor, right? So you can actually look at the degree to which your body responds to a particular meal, to a particular foods, to particular times of day. And you can actually map that. Uh, and I've worn these uh, continuous glucose monitors, you know, not a massive amount, but for some months, you know, I've, I've worn them intermittently. I'll, I'll wear them on and off just to check in. And, and you, can, you can watch this. And if you simultaneously, if you're also getting measurements of insulin, you can get a sense for uh, know what your sensitivity is. And, and you can look at just kind of what it is also if you're just in a fasted state. And so based on measures like um, something called a HOMA IR uh, or insulin, then you can get diagnosed actually as being pre-diabetic. So what that means is you haven't lost the ability to, uh, to control glucose. You're not diabetic yet, but you can see that you're on the path. And so that is really important. So I was pre-diabetic actually some years ago and was able to reverse that by diet and lifestyle, uh, which many people have. It's not that complicated to do. If you look at it early, just change your diet, you know, increase your activity, some basic things. But as you get further down the road, it becomes quite irreversible. And I don't know if it's ever irreversible, but you start having serious problems. So if you're at the late stage of diabetes, you become insensitive to pain. So what happens is that a person will step on a nail, for example, and not know it. And it festers. And so, and I forget, I saw this gruesome. I'm not going to get it exactly right because I looked at it a little while ago, but but uh, foot amputations for diabetics were up something like 40% over the last five years. It was some some crazy number like that. And you can imagine, you know, that you've gone all the way from something that you can cure in essence by, you know, slight modifications of diet and walking to something that's going to require cutting off a, a limb. Mm -hmm. And so the, the starkness or the difference in diabetes between doing something early in prevention, which is actually pleasant to do in, 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 in many ways, uh, compared to something that's gruesome at the end is, is incredibly stark. And it's one of the areas that we want to see across all these different diseases, which is to actually gain an appreciation for what pre-disease means in Alzheimer's disease or, you know, in cardiovascular disease, we also, we also know that that one's been mapped out pretty well and so forth. And we could get into any of those, those kind of issues. I see. So with diabetes and with 
a number of things. There's this sort of pre-disease state before you have full-fledged diabetes or something else. And I guess the point of the digital phenotyping or monitoring your physiology is that you can actually see that and then take the necessary changes. Yeah. So I, I'll give you an example. So let's take cardiovascular disease. So cardiovascular disease is probably, along with diabetes, the best disease that we've mapped out those risk factors or, or what comes before. A big reason for that is a real famous study uh, that uh, called the Framingham study, you know, which monitored for many decades people who lived in Framingham, Massachusetts, and followed you know, what was happening in their lives and did it for long enough that you could observe you know, who got heart attacks and you know, who got strokes and who didn't and, mm -hmm. and was able to, to really look at a lot of warning signs. So one warning sign is, um, and there's nuances to this, but one warning sign, for example, is uh, LDL cholesterol, right? LDL cholesterol being high is considered a bad thing. Uh, HDL cholesterol, so-called good cholesterol being high is considered a, you know, a good thing. And so you can monitor for those and that's done for millions of people, right? And we intervene on those in statins and statins and things of that nature. Now, one of the really fascinating elements there, and this is actually a study that we did a couple of years ago, is if you take some of the new technologies like genomics, so if you measure you know, genes out of an individual, you can create what's called a polygenic risk score. So just summing up the, the contributions from a number of different genetic variants, and it turns out you can predict blood levels of LDL cholesterol in people pretty well from the genome. There's a lot of the information is, is encapsulated there. And so we had uh, done an analysis uh, where we had, we had taken about 5,000 people through a wellness program over the course of about four years. And we looked at individuals going through that wellness program and whether or not they were able to lower their LDL cholesterol, right? And thus, you know, presumably lowering their risk of cardiovascular disease or not. And it turned out that you could predict who would be successful and who wouldn't on that measure based on genetics. Hmm. So if someone would, had high LDL cholesterol, and their genome predicted they'd be high, we saw no statistically significant ability for them to lower their LDL cholesterol by lifestyle. Mm. You can do it with statins or so forth. But if there was a gap, in other words, if their LDL cholesterol in their blood was high, but their genome predicted it should be low, they could lower their LDL cholesterol very significantly by lifestyle intervention. And so some of the really fascinating things going forward are that you can create a new category of information in medicine, which is this delta, this gap mm -hmm. between what your genome predicts and what your measure is. And if there's space there, those are the easiest things that appears to be able to change and to move. And as you then think about doing that for all the different measures that we use in medicine, you can create a, a map for an individual of all the things that are easiest for them to change, mm -hmm. they could that would make a material difference in their health aimed at pre, you know, predictive and preventive personalized medicine. I and see. so that's where we're going. So, I, so if you have all of this information, you get your genome sequenced, you are measuring various aspects of what your body's doing. Let's just say you find 10 things where this kind of gap exists. Yeah. Maybe your doctor could look at this data and say, okay, for five of these, I don't even need to give you a drug. You can just do simple things and here's what they are. And then for another five, maybe it's not so simple and you know that that's where you need to give a drug. Instead of 
giving a drug for all 10 or something like that. Yeah. And this is an area that we're, you know, really interested in. And it's one of the things that I'm doing a lot, you know, with Thorn Health Tech now is, you know, so I'm, I'm not anti-drug by any, by any stretch of the imagination, you know, if, if drugs are what are necessary and that's what's, you know, where the evidence points, we should use them. But by the same token, drugs are primarily developed for late stage disease. Mm. They usually come with side effects and, and, and you're making a trade-off, right? And depending on the severity of the disease, the tolerance for side effects goes up with that. So if someone is, has late stage cancer, like we'll actually give them chemotherapy, mm-hmm. right? Chemotherapy is horrible, right? It's going to, it's going to kill every fast growing cell in your body and you're hoping it kills the tumor, Right but it's also going to destroy the lining of your gut. It's going to kill all, you know, your hair, your hair is going to fall out. It's going to kill all that. And so we'll tolerate that. But what we're really interested in are what are the kind of things that you can do in the prevention space? And as you move into the, the more you move into prevention, obviously the fewer side effects that you're willing to tolerate, and you've got to have an incredible safety profile. And this is where we're very interested in lifestyle interventions and also, um, things like uh, like nutraceuticals or natural products or things of this nature, where you can have some of the similar effects to a lot of drugs, but you're going to, but you hit the target more softly, but mm-hmm. without a lot of side effects. And so you're trying to have this trade-off between, you know, you have this really serious issue that you're trying, you know, you're kind of willing to take a hammer to it versus where you are trying to nudge it in certain directions, you know, just like we talked about in diabetes, you know, once you're at late stage diabetes, you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to do something, you know, drastic to try to make a difference early stage. You can do things that are pretty easy. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned at one point you were pre-diabetic yourself, but you reversed that through lifestyle and diet changes. So what were those changes and what are, you know, what are the um, general rules of thumb for things like diet and blood glucose? My understanding is right. Some foods will make you spike bigger, in your blood sugar levels and some will be a much more prolonged and softer spike. So, so what are some of those general rules there? Yeah. So uh, we can talk, I mean, they're at a high level, it's really simple stuff. It's, you know, cutting out as much of the processed, you know, high sugary foods as you can and, and getting more activity. Uh, If you can spend some amount of time, you know, there's a lot of interest in, you know, intermittent fasting or things of that nature, uh, which we could talk a little bit about if, if we want. Uh, but basically, anything that just allows you to, um, you know, to have an opportunity to process out some of the sugar in your in your bloodstream. Uh, basically, all of that works. To get a little more personalized, you know, with the continuous glucose monitor that I mentioned, it is quite interesting to look at uh, what foods in particular spike you a lot. So. So one that was surprising to me is if I compare, uh, there's a beef stew that my wife makes, you know, it's got white potatoes in it and carrots and beef. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a good, you know, a nice stew. I ate that and my blood, like my blood sugar spiked massively. Mm. If I compare that to say ice cream, you know, which got a little fat in there, uh, it spiked about double what the ice cream did. (laughs) <laughs> in terms of like the blood spot, which I was surprised by. That was one of the things that I was. Yeah. You wouldn't naturally. Surprised by that. I didn't that. actually think that. Yeah. Uh, so know. how, um, so a lot of this is common sense. So something that's got a lot of sugar in it will tend to 
um, yeah. make your blood spike more um, on average. Um, although there are surprises, as you just mentioned, how much how much of the individual reaction that one would see is going to depend on that person? So we've already sort of talked about there's genetic differences between people. How common would it be for two different people to have a very different blood glucose spike? So you can definitely have quite different blood glucose spikes across individuals. And in fact, probably the coolest study on this that I've seen uh, was done by Iran Segal and Iran Elenov out in Israel. You're probably aware of this study. It's very famous, but it's a uh, where they looked at the impact of the microbiome. Mm. And it turns turned out that you could predict from people's microbiome certain foods that would have you know, a higher impact in one person and not another. And they used this to create these two uh, kind of two diets for people where it was a little hard to guess like which was the healthy and which is the unhealthy. Because we all have a pretty good sense of you know, generically a healthy diet and generically an unhealthy, right? There's no healthy diet that's, you know, 100% Twinkies or something like that. That doesn't exist. But they did do it where, you know, one of the diets had ice cream and the other had chocolate and the other, you know, and the, the, it was go back and forth where it was a little hard to eyeball and say which was which. And then they would predict which would be better for certain individuals. And they were actually able to get quite a good signal off that where some people, a cookie would spike them massively and another person, a banana would, would spike more than the cookie and some mm. people would be the opposite and so forth. So we do know about a number of those uh, kind of specific uh, responses, at least as mediated in that, that regard. I see. So to a first approximation, a lot of this is common sense, but I mean, you've now mentioned a couple examples where, you know, maybe a banana makes you spike a lot and for someone else it doesn't, which, you know, you probably would never guess that if you didn't know anything. So it sounds like if you really want to know, you do actually have to monitor your blood glucose. And so I guess my next question is, how accurate are these monitor monitoring devices and how expensive are they and how easy are they to use? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think they're, they're quite accurate. They're certainly easily accurate enough to be highly useful. You know, you're not surprised by it. You, know, you, it's, you never eat a meal and it doesn't spike up and it's, you know, they're quite reproducible. It goes back. As far as I can tell, the data on them is, is very good. You know, there might be some sort of gold standard device you could compare against. And there's a little deviation, but for the average person, they're, they're way worth it in terms of being able to see what, what's going on. Uh, Cost-wise, I think the one I, well, I'll t- they're still a little bit difficult to get because you've got, unless they've changed it very recently, and it probably depends partly which state you're in, uh, you do have to get a doctor to prescribe it. I see. And so the di- most difficult part is finding a doctor that's kind of okay with, you know, the notion that you don't have diabetes, but you just are curious about your body and you want mm-hmm. to figure out how to optimize. Now I'm a huge proponent of, of preventive medicine. So, and, and personalized medicine. And I'm, so I'm very happy for people to say, you know, I'm pre-diabetic or even if I'm not pre-diabetic, there's a lot of really healthy people that just want to know what the impact is and learn about their body. And there's a, there's a ton of interest in that. Um, in the early days, it was harder to get because there were just kind of a limited supply of them. So they restricted them to diabetics. Now, if you get the right, you know, if a doctor that's, you know, aligned with your wanting to just understand your body, then you can get a, you can get a prescription for them. Uh, and then you can buy them. I can't remember exactly what the cost is, uh, on them, but the one that I used, uh, was a two was basically you, it's a, it's a patch that you put on or not a patch. It's a, um, I don't know what to call it. You know, you put this little sensor into your, 
into your arm, totally painless. They have a little gun, you push a button and it goes right in. Mm -hmm. And then the cool thing is you can hold your phone up to it and it will immediately tell you your blood glucose level at any moment of the day. And it also tracks it passively. So I think it makes a measure about every, every few minutes or so, Hmm. and then you get a trend. But if anytime you want to see where it is, I found that super useful because I, you know, I might be eating something and, and especially if I'm introducing new things into my diet, Mm -hmm. I can, I can try it and then I can do the measurement and look and see, you know, did it, did it spike me? You know, did I, did I go to a level I really didn't want to go to? Mm -hmm. Cause I'd like to keep my, you know, my blood sugar a little more controlled. And the other thing I like is you can test out, um, you know, products. There's a lot of products that will claim that they've got, uh, you know, health benefits or that, you know, they have, you know, maybe they've got a little sugar in them, but they add fiber to it. Mm -hmm. And so you can monitor and say, okay, how much of a difference does it actually make for you? And there are things you can do that make a big difference. So let's say you are going to indulge in something sugary for whatever Mm -hmm. reason. Like one of the things you can do is you can, you can observe, like if you just eat that, you know, what your, what it does to your blood. And you can also look at, well, what if I choose to drink um, a fiber drink or something like that, Mm -hmm. right? You say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to down 20 grams of fiber before I eat this. And you can observe that in fact, it does blunt the amount of sugar uptake. It slows it down, right? Because when you eat fruit, there's a bunch of fiber in there too, which is why it doesn't spike you quite as much as say eating, you know, something that is just processed sugar straight up, which basically doesn't, which in a natural, you know, in a kind of a natural diet would kind of not happen, right? You'd be eating fruit that has something in there. I see. So like if you drink, so it is true. If you drink a glass of like sunny delight, orange juice, it's not got pulp in it. It's probably got added sugar versus an organic orange juice with pulp. It, it really will have, it would have a difference in your blood glucose level peak, even if they had the same amount of sugar in them because one has the pulp and one doesn't. Yes. And you'd be much better off eating the orange, right? Because mm. that's what really has, you know, much more of the fiber in it. As soon as you juice it, uh, right. And then juicing with both juicing without pulp would be even worse, but you know, but the juice, yeah, the juicing is going to, is going to spike you much more than is, you know, the eating of the fruit itself. Mm. Yeah. So what about, so what effect does exercise itself have on blood glucose levels and how does that interact with diet? So for example, if you just go exercise strenuously, is that going to take down your blood sugar or change it at all? Yeah, it, it can actually go both ways depending on where you're at, because sometimes people are surprised because they'll go exercise and they'll see their blood sugar go up. And the reason for that is you're recruiting energy. So it's, it's pulling glycogen you know, out. And so it's, it's flooding uh, some glucose into your system. That said, if you're like, if you're super high glucose and you say, okay, I'm going to go out and walk or something like that, you'll see it come down. So it is context dependent, the, what you'll see happen in your, in your blood glucose. Uh, if you're, if you're exercising, you know, more when you're fasted and that's when I was monitoring myself, that was more the, the norm, which is I'd, I'd exercise in the morning. Uh, I would, you know, I would see the blood glucose actually go up because it's recruiting some, you know, some energy from, you know, from the fat stores. <laughs> I see. So it depends. So, so it really is useful if you can get your hands on one of these glucose monitors to, I to really like, yeah, 
Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I'm about to try. I haven't tried one, but I'm going to try one, I think in a week or two. Okay. And um, just for people listening, the, what I had to do is a, it's not open to everyone, the one that I'm going to try. So it's not like fully publicly available. It, the retail price I think is something like $200 for like a three month period where you'd be able to monitor it. And what I did have to do is I did have to, um, so you mentioned you had to get a prescription. So I had to input like my basic medical history, my medical stats and stuff. And then someone through the app approved it, a physician that was licensed for the state that I'm in. And that's what I had to go through. So it yeah, took people have been working on making it easier. I know. <laughs> Interesting. So you mentioned, um, you mentioned that study about the microbiome and I did want to talk about microbiome stuff. Can you start off by just defining for people that don't know what the microbiome is and why it's such a big focus of research right now? Sure. So the microbiome refers to essentially all the microbes that live in a particular environment. So one of the most common that we think about is the gut microbiome. So what this means is that in your body, in your gut are, you know, basically tons of microbes that live there, reside there. They, and they under, they perform uh, metabolic transformations and that are essential to a lot of uh, what goes into making you healthy or not healthy. So it can incorporate, so the microbiome is, is really looking at all these other living organisms that are on us and, you know, and uh, inside us. Uh, and it is really an important thing to understand because microbes are what first evolved, you know, the life that first evolved on this planet. So the vast majority of life actually exists as microbial species. And so that is just the interface kind of the, so every interface that we have, whether it's our skin, our mouth, our gut, basically everything we have that interfaces with the outside world in some way is coated with, uh, with these microbes. Interesting. So with the gut microbiome, can you give people a sense for like, you know, I've heard, and I don't know if this is true that you know, there's more microbes in your gut than there are cells in your body. What's like the level of diversity and volume that we're talking about here? Yeah, there was, there was kind of a, a, a lot of analysis of that uh, at one point, but basically, yes, if you look at the number of cells in your body and the number of, you know, microbial cells that you have in your gut microbiome, in your microbiome, uh, I believe that the latest numbers are that it's about equal. Yeah. Initially it was thought to be about 10 to one. And then people looked at a little more and said, well, it's probably a little bit too much, but you know, about, about the same number. So you've got a massive uh, number of these. If you do the count differently, right? If you count, you know, the total genetic content of your microbiome is vastly higher. I think it's a hundred to one. I've been a little while since I looked at that number, but I think it's about a hundred to one, the amount of kind of genetic content that you have in your microbiome compared to your human genome. So there is a huge amount of information that's there. And what we're finding is that it is incredibly relevant to health. And, and it is still very much a cutting edge area. And you know, we can go, we've done a number of studies in this, and I'm sure we'll talk about a few of them here in a second. Uh, but it is an area that people are just really trying to get their minds wrapped around and push out as much information as they possibly can, you know, and this is, you know, we actually have a, you know, a gut microbiome test, you know, so people can take that 
and they can go through, they can get a measurement of the microbiome and it gives back a whole host of information about, you know, relevant to health, both good signs and bad signs and things you can do to, to make an impact on it. Mm -hmm. I think let's first talk about what these microbes are doing and what we know about that. And then talk about things like, like the health impact and the variation between people and across, across lifespan. So, so in general, what exactly are these microbes doing in a physiological sense? Are they pre-digesting certain um, nutrients for us? Are they secreting things that are beneficial for the body or that we need for different things? Like, what do we know there? Yeah, it's all the things that you just talked about. Um, so they do create uh, certain compounds that have been associated with health, uh, butyrate, uh, indoles, things like this have been shown to have positive health effects. Uh, they also make molecules that have a negative health effect. So one example of this is if you have certain species of bacteria, uh, they will utilize uh, material that they'll find in things like, like red meat, uh, in eggs and different aspects of the diet. And they create a compound uh, called trimethylamine or TMA for short. And then TMA will get into your bloodstream and then your liver actually converts it into um, trimethylamine oxide, TMAO. And TMAO is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Mm. And so one of the things that happens there then is you can actually have compounds that in the absence of this bacteria are actually beneficial to you. But if you have those bacteria, it makes this TMA, creates the TMAO uh, in the liver and you end up with problems from that. And so there's this whole network of, uh, of metabolic transformations that are mediated by the microbiome for both good and bad. And I can give you, I can give a couple other examples. So another one is that the microbiome actually interfaces with drugs we take as well. Mm. So there was a really fascinating study that came out in, I think it was in cell earlier this year. And they went through and did a really deep dive on one particular individual's microbiome. And then they tested it against a whole host of drugs to see what happened when that, those drugs were exposed to the microbiome. And what it turned out was that 13% of the drugs were inactivated, right? They were just eaten or changed into some other substance or made inert or, you know, whatever it was that, uh, so you inactivated 13% of drugs. So one of the things, and, you know, we talked to drug companies about this quite a lot uh, is, you know, so if you're, you're developing a drug, you're running a trial, if you're not measuring the microbiome, then you have this huge black box that could be deactivating your drug. So some of the people that you're testing aren't even on your drug, really. I mean, they're yeah. putting it in their mouth, but it's getting changed to something else. They're not, you know, so it, that, so you've got this big black box. And so one of the things that, you know, I'm a big proponent of is if you're testing drugs, you should absolutely be monitoring the microbiome and understanding, you know, are those drugs being deactivated by the microbiome, because you could fail the trial, not because of the drug not being good, but especially if you're doing it, maybe do it in a part of the country where the kind of bacteria that eat that drug are really prominent and you have no idea, you know, and how many things could that have happened to is really a fascinating question. Yeah. Well, so you just mentioned another thing that's interesting. You said 
in a certain part of the country where that bacteria is prominent. So does the microbiome composition of people systematically vary from region to region? Yeah, it does. Um, you know, and there, there are commonalities, of course, not like it's a hundred percent different or something, but it, it varies a lot. They did a study. This was, there's a nature medicine paper from 2018 out of China. And in that case, what they did is they took signatures that they would learn from the microbiome in one province, you know, and associated with health, like this is a healthy microbiome, this is unhealthy. And they would look, you know, the machine learned these things. And then you would apply it in the next province over. And what happened is that the accuracy of that went down substantially because of this variation between um, uh, microbiomes and where they are in different places and in different people. So a couple of things though, that are, that are quite interesting. So we, we wrote ourselves a nature biotechnology paper in 2019. And what we were able to show is that you could capture about 50% of the variance in the diversity of the microbiome that would filter down into information in about 40 metabolites that you would see in the blood. So one aspect is that you've got this massive diversity in the species, but it does funnel down to a much more manageable kind of number of things to look at in terms of what do you find in the blood that are products of the metabolism that's going on in the microbiome. And it's co-metabolism, right? It's happening both in our bodies and, and they're much like the TMAO example. So you can see that. Uh, and then a second item that we did, we published a paper in um, Nature um, Metabolism uh, earlier this year, where we, we monitored, and I think it was in close to about 10,000 people, microbiomes as you get older. And so as we did that, what we found was that if people stay healthy, your microbiome actually becomes increasingly unique, meaning that it, it looks less like anyone else's microbiome. All right, so everyone's microbiome, if you stay healthy, it goes away if you get on a bunch of drugs or if you get hospitalized or, or things like that. Hmm. But if you don't, if you stay healthy, your microbiome's kind of going along your life with you and it starts looking more like your microbiome than anybody else's and they kind of diverge a little bit. And, but even as that divergence in the microbiome species is happening, we looked at the metabolites that were associated again as they appeared in the blood and you saw certain commonalities of the kind of things that would change um, as, uh, and uh, through the course of life. And there was a commonality to that, even though the species themselves change. So what this means is that there's, uh, there's a lot that you can delve in on by trying to understand the reflections of the microbiome in the host, right? In the person, like what, what do we see that's coming out of that that's good and that's bad? And, you know, that's why we incorporate a lot in, in our testing uh, predictions about, you know, what are the metabolic effects that we expect to see given the species and the gene content, you know, that we measure out of your microbiome, for example. Mm -hmm. So basically, you know, the microbiome's huge, you know, millions and millions, billions of cells of bacteria and other things living inside of our bodies, on our bodies. There's many different species and types of microbes that'll be part of that microbiome. The exact composition of that whole population could be relatively similar in me and you, and it could be relatively different. But depending on what that full population looks like, what that full microbiome looks like, that's going to have, that's going to mean that certain nutrients, certain metabolites either are in my body or are not in my body as a consequence right. of or it. Or at different levels, right? Or at different not, levels. It's not an on off necessarily, right? It could be different levels. 
so this is another area where you know it sounds like you you really can't know unless you actually measure it. So how how easy is this to do these days? So this is super easy. Uh, so uh, you know there's a number of tests out there. Uh, uh, ours is out there as well. Uh, you know, the Thorn Gut Health Test, and you can get uh, and what we do is what's called metagenomic sequencing. So this means you're not only getting the species, you're actually measuring all of the gene content. So you can get that. And then what that allows you to do are calculations about what kind of metabolisms do we see represented in that microbiome. And you can relate that uh, back to a number of conditions. We actually did a a trial uh, on personalized recommendations from the gut health test uh, for people that were suffering from irritable bowel syndrome, which we published in uh, personalized medicine two uh, year ago, I think it was one, 2019 or, or 2020. And when we looked at that, um, you know, what we were able to see was that you could get very significant amelioration of symptoms by following personalized recommendations. These were lifestyle and supplement uh, type things, you know, so, you know, not drugs, mm-hmm. uh, but basically you could take natural approaches. You could modify the microbiome and you could, get rid of a lot of the symptoms of IBS in this case. So it sounds like the, the microbiome is relatively easily modifiable. And I'm interested in how easy it is in terms of um, like physical exercise versus diet versus like probiotics. Yeah. So you can definitely modify it it's more modifiable by prebiotics than it is by probiotics, but I'll give a little bit of a caveat. So, so, uh, so one product that we've got the prebiotic plus, we call it, but the the reason that, uh, and it's, um, it's basically, it's a two dimensional printed disc. Mm -hmm. And what it has on there are three things. And this is, this is one of the issues because oftentimes if you just take a probiotic, um, it is, uh, oftentimes it won't change your microbiome. And the reason for that is that the species that are existing in your, that are there already in your gut, for example, they're there because they out, they competed to be there. Like they're good at doing what they're doing and surviving there. And so you introduce a new species and it can be hard. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we did is we actually, uh, in this product, we incorporate what are called bacteriophages. And so if you take a, if you take a bacteriophage, then basically what you can do. And that's a virus. Uh, yeah. And it kills bacteria. It's a virus that kills specific bacteria. So mm-hmm. it's aimed at, 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 you know, bad classes of bacteria to use a simple term. So what you're doing there is you're creating an ecological niche. So you're creating some space. Then you put in a probiotic, right? The good species that you want to get in there and then incorporated on the same disc are prebiotics. So the fibers that we know that the probiotics most like to eat. So what you're doing is you're creating a space. You're adding in what you want to now fill that niche because now there's a little bit of space for them to compete. And then you give them the the stuff they grow on best to help them out compete and change your microbiome in that way. So those are the kind of things that we think about. So you can get a microbiome to change, but you do have to create, you've got to create some space or prebiotics just because you are changing the structure of the food sources right? That can have a more persistent effect usually than the probiotic, but that combination approach is what, what I, I see. 
I see. So if you were trying to like grow a garden in your backyard and you wanted roses growing in it, you could just sort of blindly throw seeds in the yard, but it might not grow because you've got a bunch of weeds and other stuff back there. But if you pull out the weeds and make sure the soil's right for that plant or that flower, then it can grow. Is that the basic idea? A perfect analogy. Yep. That's exactly right. So that's the difference between prebiotic and probiotic. And probiotic is like you're adding something and prebiotic is like you are uh, preemptively creating the right environment. That's exactly right. The probiotic is essentially, you know, the flowers you're going to plant. Uh, the prebiotic, you know, probiotics, you know, the flowers you're going to plant. The prebiotic is the, so- the fertilizer that is optimized for the plant that you put in, basically mm-hmm. the food that it, it most likes. So you said that you guys at Thorne, you have, you have one of these products. What can you descri- just physically describe it and how much it costs and how, how you actually use it? Yeah, sure. Um, so we've got, we've actually got a whole suite of products that are associated with the microbiome test that get personalized recommendations for people. I think there's something like 40 or 50 different uh, products that can be recommended depending on what the issue is, mm-hmm. but the, the more general ones we do. So one is uh, with a brand called a Fusio, uh, which actually I quite like these. So these are, uh, and I actually take this every day myself, but it's a, uh, it's a, it's a two dimensional printed disc. So, and so what you do is you take the disc and you just drop it in water it can be hot or cold. I typically do it cold. You drop it in, it dissolves and you basically it's a beverage. Uh, mm-hmm. It's quite good. Uh, Stephen Phipps, who's the uh, guy who's our um, chief innovation officer and he really makes all the products, but he was also a chef in his younger days. So it's kind of funny. So he's like a chemist, but he also has a good, good uh, sense of some of these things. Really good guy. But, um, but basically as you drop that in um, and so it just becomes a bit, it's a berry flavored drink. Uh, I, forget the exact cost. I think it's something like $40 for a month's supply, something like that. And it's just something that you drink. So that that's one. Uh, and that's the one I mentioned that has the bacteriophages, the, um, uh, the probiotics and the prebiotics kind of all in one. So that's one element. We've also got other products, uh, one called FiberMend and EnteroMend, which essentially have a bunch of nutrients that are good for your microbiome and adds fiber. So if you're having an issue this is actually how I first became aware of Thorn before I worked there because I was having this, um, you know, in turn, TMI here, I was having very painful daily constipation. <laughs> it was really unpleasant. And, uh, and someone, you know, turned me on to uh, the Thorn, uh, the Thorn product. And they said, hey, you should take this Entromen and Fibermen. And I got on it. And two days later, it was gone. It had been plaguing me for months. Uh, I stayed on it. I then quit using the product. And uh, for about a month and it came right back and then I got back on it. And then I, you know, I switched to taking the, the non-fiber um, just uh, uh, disc later and I've never had it come back since. So, which has been nice, but that was one of the things that got me interested. And then when they reached out about a year later, I, I actually knew who they were and <laughs> was, uh, was impressed with what they had made. So you mentioned earlier this idea that um, the microbiome, the composition of your microbiome will change as you age. Um, not only, not only is it going to change as a function of your lifestyle, but it's probably just going to, it's going to age in some sense, just like you age. And you mentioned something about the uniqueness of this microbiome being a kind of marker for general health status. Can you say a little bit more about what, what the finding was there? Yeah, that, and it's kind of a, the uniqueness score, it's a little bit of a, a more difficult one to use in sort of a, 
you know, an actionability setting because it is a property within a cohort. But we did see that when we use that uniqueness score, we looked in a, in a, in this case, was in an, an elderly population of men in something called the Mr. Oz cohort. So it was a, a cohort that we had access to uh, working with Eric Orwall at the Oregon uh, Health Sciences University. And basically, uh, if you just took that uniqueness score, it predicted um, mortality. It predicted who would live um, within the next four years in a really elderly cohort. Uh, and so it was a it was a really big differential uh, depending on your microbiome. And if all you knew about them was their microbiome, uh, you could predict with a lot of a lot of signal like who was likely to um, to survive, you know, to, to the uh, later stage. These are all people in there were aged 80 to hundred. So it was, uh, you know, an older population. So, so we know there's a lot of uh, signal uh, that is, you know, that is in that, uh, in that system. And so there are these then fundamental changes, you know, that are ongoing and, what we'd really like to understand, and this becomes really important because it, it means that, you know, if you're thinking about personalized medicine, at least as it regards the microbiome, you actually have to be more and more personalized as you go through age, because your mm -hmm. microbiomes are becoming more and more, you know, cause they're sort of co-evolving with you, right. As you go, as you go along, or that's maybe not quite exactly the technical term, but they're, you know, they're changing mm -hmm. uh, along with you you know, as you, as you go along. And so those, those were the elements that really jumped out at us, you know, was just that fact that you could use this, you know, uniqueness score as a means of, you know, predicting all cause mortality. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. That's, that's interesting that you, you would need more and more personalization as you age because you're becoming more dissimilar from other people over time. At least in terms of the microbiome. Now we actually did another study which looked, you know, very broadly at biochemistry, because there's other ways that you're becoming more similar. The differences between the sexes, for example, uh, at a molecular level, at least in the blood, right, they become attenuated as you get older, right? Because, you know, you're not pumping out as many sex hormones and things like that. So there's, there's certain axes where you're becoming more similar. I see. Other axes where you're becoming more distinct and microbiome is one of those. Hmm. Are there any like big, are there any major, um, differences that you tend to see reliably between relatively healthy versus unhealthy people in terms of the species of bacteria present and what the downstream effects are. And I guess the practical thing here would be like, are there specific species of bacteria that for most people, most of the time are good versus ones that are bad? And, and those would be ones that you would want to try and facilitate the emergence of? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'll just mention a little bit about. We're actually going through right now and looking at that in a lot of detail as we're, you know, as we're trying to work on our version three report and kind of what the next, you know, next big phase is going to be on some of these things. Uh, there, there's one strain of bacteria which is really interesting because what what we did is we went through and we did a meta analysis, and I'm not going to go into it in too much detail because it's pretty new, and I I'll just do the things I remember really clearly, uh, but basically. We did a meta-analysis that went through tons of published papers and categorized you know, whenever a whole host of different species were either associated with the good outcome or the bad outcome and how often it was mixed, right? In other words, because we all know the notion of a good bacteria, bad bacteria is only good to a point, right? It's a, it's a gross simplification. Mm -hmm. uh, but there, 
there are certain cases where that's very obvious. If you have C. difficile, which is a terrible pathogen, that's a bad bacteria, right? I don't know any situation that it's good. There's another uh, bacteria, um, uh, fecali, uh, Fecalibacterium prausnitzii. Okay, I got there eventually. <laughs> Fecalibacterium prausnitzii, which has come up as a good bacteria in every single analysis that we've run so far. It's the only one that we've found that like 100% of the time so far has come up to be really good. I don't believe it's available from anyone yet as a, as a probiotic. Uh, I think people are trying to get at it. Uh, another species that turns out to be really good uh, over and over again is uh, Acromancia. Mm -hmm. uh, this is actually sold by a company called Pendulum, uh, which um, uh, led by mm -hmm. Colleen uh, Cutliff. And uh, she really done a nice job with this. So, you know, it's a, it's a you know, relatively recent startup, but it's a very hard bacteria to culture, but it, it's, it's very involved in the mucus layer of the gut. And it turns out that it helps control symptoms of prediabetes, for example. So mm -hmm. it lowers hemoglobin A1C uh, by, you know, kind of enhancing, and there's, you know, more to it, I suppose, but, you know, but by enhancing that, um, uh, that uh, mucus layer. And so that, you know, that's another one that's really in the, you know, in the good category and has some good clinical, uh, clinical data uh, behind it. Uh, so that's, an, that's another really, uh, really nice one. And do we uh, know there are those things out there? And, and so do we just sort of broadly know that these species are correlated with what we consider, you know, good outcomes, or do we know specifically that they're producing some sort of metabolite that's doing something in particular? Yeah. Um, Sometimes we know that and sometimes we don't. There's, there's a lot of this, you know, we mentioned some of the bad ones, for example, that we know, you know, create TMA that make TMAO and, and things of that nature. There is a fair bit that's known about the biology around acromancia that I mentioned. And so, you know, and how it, it actually blunts um, uh, the sugar uptake, um, you know, through that mucus layer and then uh, has an effect on hemoglobin A1C, although it's not a super area of expertise of mine. So I'm going on, so I'm going on, you know, the bit that I know about that. Um, there is, so in some of these cases, we really do. So I'll talk about, so one of the really interesting areas um, is, you know, how the microbiome may play a role in things like weight loss, mm. uh, which is a real hot topic area, right? We all, a lot of us care about that. Uh, and and it's definitely not a solved problem. I want to be very clear about that, but, but there's some really interesting things that have come out, uh, at least in my opinion on this. So we actually did a paper that we published a couple of months ago uh, with, uh, and this was led a lot, uh, that really led by Sean Gibbons, who's a great collaborator and friend of mine at the Institute for Systems Biology, um, you know, where, where I've been for a long time um, before Thorne. And so the, um, and so in this paper, it was, uh, we took data from this. Uh, so previously I had co-founded a company called, I didn't, we didn't get into this, called Aravail that ran a scientific wellness uh, program for many years, uh, about, well, about four years. And then we had 5,000 people who had gone through this program. And so we have these really dense data sets of genomes plus microbiomes, proteomes, metabolomes, clinical labs, wearable devices, like this, these huge data clouds that we, we, we've used over and over again to, you know, from the people that gave research consent uh, to really look at, you know, use that de-identified data to, to learn. 
So one of the things we did is we went back into that population and looked at, there was a subset of people who had really lost a lot of weight. And then we did a, a control set uh, or a match, you know, kind of a retrospective, but, you know, did a propensity score matched um, con- uh, a set of individuals who had not lost weight, you know, but were matched on other kinds of criteria, you know, sex and, you know, starting BMI and, you know, things like that. And so when we did that, we then compared the microbiomes at baseline to see if we could see something there that looked like it was predictive of the set, you know, what was different between the set of people lost weight and those who didn't. And there were a number of things that came out. And what I like about it is that they seem to make a lot of sense from a mechanistic point of view. So one element is we looked at the growth rate of the microbiome. So just the aggregate growth rate. So there's this trick that you can use. It's actually really a a really cool trick. I think it was Aron Segal that figured this out initially, which was again, uh, really interesting. So, you know, in bacteria, you've got a chromosome. Mm -hmm. And so as you are replicating, right, you're going to measure that from one side to the other as you divide into two cells. And so it turns out that because in a population, it means you'll have more material, more genetic material stacked up at the beginning of the replication than at the end. And it will be higher the faster the growth rate is. So you can actually just use sequencing at one time point. And then you take this, what's called the peak to trough ratio, right? So how high you're stacked up at the beginning as you get down to the the minimum part. And if you do that, you can get an estimate of growth rate. So we use that, uh, you know, that analysis uh, trick. And basically what we were able to show was that the people who lost the most weight had microbiomes that appeared to be growing the fastest according to that metric. Mm. And so independent independent of the composition of the biome, just the aggregate growth rate, aggregate growth rate. And I'm going to composition matters too, but I'm going to talk about it in a second. But the first thing that mattered was just how fast it grows. Now it makes some sense because every calorie you eat is consumed either by you or by your microbiome. And so if it's growing faster, maybe it's churning more. We haven't, we've still got to go down and really look at the magnitude of that, you know, that possible effect as an explanation, but it, you know, it's the one that immediately springs to mind is mm-hmm. that, well, you know, maybe there's something to that. It's, it's revved up higher for whatever reason. So that's one. Second is when you're eating complex carbohydrates, they go into your microbiome and it breaks them down. And the two dominant ways that it can break it down is it can break it down into sim- simple sugars, which are going to trigger the insulin responses we talked about at the beginning, or it can turn it into short chain fatty acids, which aren't going to have that same kind of effect. And the other thing that turned out was that the people who lost a lot of weight had microbiomes that preferentially made short chain fatty acids from their carbohydrates instead of sugars, hmm. right? Not hundred percent or it's not digital and, or, but it's just a, you know, which is the preponderance of the species that are there. And so we thought that was really interesting. And then the, and, and amongst those were uh, species that were high butyrate pr- producers, which then I mentioned that before, because that's been in many, many studies associated with better health outcomes. So as we look at that, that's gotten us pretty interested. You know, we're kind of figuring out where we want to go with this because if you, if you look in the literature, it turns out that, you know, so people have done these experiments in mice. Um, 
where, uh, well, I shouldn't say people, Iran Segal did this. I love Iran, as you can tell. He's very smart. <laughs> I think I mentioned his paper now three times. <laughs> you know, um, but um, so he did this really fascinating uh, experiment where he looked at, uh, he took mice, right? And he gave them, took a population of mice and he gave them, uh, put one of them on a really high calorie, high fat, I think it was a high fat kind of diet. Anyway, made them all fat, right? So you had a fat mice and you had these thin mice. Then he dieted them, right? Calorie restricted, brought them down. Now, if you took these mice that had lost weight, so he took half of them and in half of them, he did nothing to them. And in the other half, he obliterated their microbiome basically. And then he gave them the microbiome of the thin mouse that he'd never made fat. Mm. And what happened as you went forward was that all the mice that had their original microbiome became fat again. And the ones that had the microbiome of the thin mouse did not when you put them back in the cages and just let them eat. And, and that, so they were eating the same diet. Yeah. Yeah. My understanding is that they were eating the same diet. And so the thing that was just striking was that it was causal to weight mm -hmm. regain if they had a microbiome with the memory of being fat rather than one that didn't have that memory. Mm -hmm. And so, so that got me really excited because we know, because we're not talking about like taking a molecule, you know, some small molecule that works in a mouse and saying, oh, let's, you know, see if it does the same thing in a person, mm -hmm. which is of course a very general path for, for pharma and so forth. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, right? Because we're a different system. Yep. Here, though, we're talking about just taking a very general concept that your microbiome matters to being able to keep off weight and saying, do we think that's also true in human? And I can't, and we don't know to the same degree, but I, I can't think of a reason that it would be different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so then when we look in, as we did with the Aravail data set, it was really interesting because there we can see that you know, there are these features, right, that were different between the people that lost and who didn't. And so, you know, one of the things I'm really interested in now is trying to triangulate down on, well, how could we actually make a difference in the microbiome that would help, you know, that as a category for people? Because obviously it is, um, you know, an incredibly, uh, it's an incredibly impactful area, right? We, we have, I don't know the exact number, but you know, we have a massive number of obese and overweight people in the, in the country and the world. Yeah. So let's, let's just say you're the average American. Um, you might not be in terrible, terrible health, but you've got room for improvement. You know, you want to, you want to do better than you're doing now. So obviously, you know, the ideal situation is you get your genome sequenced, you get your microbiome sequenced, you have a private conversation with Nathan Price, you get every single, every single like personal recommendation you can think of. That's the ideal state. Um, but we're obviously not there. Is there, in terms of where our knowledge is at today, are there very generic things one could do using some of Thorne's technology or products or anything else that are virtually guaranteed to at least move you in the right direction. So for example, let's just say you know nothing about the person except they want to get in better shape or lose a little bit of weight. You know nothing about their microbiome. Is there um, a prebiotic, probiotic combination that is very likely to be better than whatever they have right now? 
Yeah, for sure. Um, and we do try to make it as easy as possible. Certainly on at thorn.com, there's you know different questionnaires people can take in terms of like what are the you know what are the issues that they may be you know suffering for. Uh, we do have you know the tests that people want to dive in more the thorn gut health test. We also have a biological age test that measures a lot of um, you know highly used uh, clinical labs you know and, and points to you know where those are at relative to. Um, you know, the age that you are and the sex that you are and so forth. Uh, there are a lot of things that people can do, you know, I hesitate to say generically because I do think it really matters, you know, exactly what your goals are, where you're at, but there are just a, a whole host, like we've got, um, you know, there's just a whole host of things that you can do that, that make, that make a difference. Uh, in terms of health, and maybe in a, you know maybe a little bit we'll talk about you know aging, which I think has a has a ton of really interesting elements to it as well. Um, I do you know I do like you know the pre, you know the prebiotic product that I mentioned. You know I use that every day. I take a bunch of stuff every day just because I you know I'm interested in various elements. But I really like getting measurements from you know my doctor. You know I'll often work with you know a doctor or personalized medicine type doctor that likes to you know, that will measure a, a ton of things out of my blood and let me know kind of what's, what's going on. Uh, but there are a host of things that people, people can do, you know, depending on, on what their, what their interest is and what their, you know, what, what uh, to make an impact in their gut. And there is, I think something like 30% of people suffer from a gut problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've had really good success uh, for people uh, coming in with, you know, whether it's, you know, diarrhea or constipation or bloating or, and, you know, there's, there's kind of a, a tree that people can go through if they want that will, you know, kind of help guide, you know, what we think might be useful to them. Interesting. And then, and then you can read reviews and, and give feedback and all those things. Um, so when you started taking the prebiotic probiotic combination thing that you talked about earlier, what did you actually notice? Did you feel like, what were the first things you noticed? Could you actually feel a difference? Yes. It made a big difference for me, I have to say. So I've, I have had gust issues for a while. So I mentioned, you know, the constipation, you know, from a few years ago, uh, that was, you know, a big problem. But the other thing is I often get, um, I have, uh, I'll get uh, gas, uh, gas buildup. And I'll notice that like if, um, uh, it, it, it pushes more my motion sickness. Like if, you know, I don't like, you know, anyway, I get motion sick in cars and things like that often. And I think a lot of people do not massively, but you know, mm -hmm. enough that it's uncomfortable. Uh, and a lot of that comes from buildup, at least for me of um, just sort of gas, I think, you know, from jiggling around or something that causes some issues. Uh, you know, sometimes during exercise, uh, things of that nature. And it's interesting because the, when I started doing the prebiotic plus that I talked about, it really reduced those symptoms significantly. And in fact, I had a chance. So I'd been on it for a while and feeling quite good. And it was interesting because I recently, when I moved from, you know, my primary appointment from ISB you know, where I'm, I'm still on, you know, on leaves, so I'm still connected to them a little bit, but I, I moved my primary appointment from ISB uh, to first longevity and then uh, Thorne health tech as, as we did the merger mm -hmm. um, there, it, um, because I moved across the country from Seattle to New York, I didn't take the prebiotic for about two months just because, you know, the way ordering. And then I had, anyway, the way this stuff was transferred, I stayed with my family for a little, so I didn't have it for a little while. And then I had to reorder it anyway. And what was really amazing to me was 
I started getting back all the old bloating and mm-hmm. I started feeling, you know, queasy in my stuff. And it was, it was kind of shocking to me because I realized that I had not felt that way in a long time. And I, and then I, I reminded me of like, oh, I used to always feel this way. And I didn't know that it was like, it's just the way I felt, right? I'm just like, that's life, right? You just sort mm-hmm. of live. And then, so for me, it, it absolutely made a big difference because I just didn't have that problem and I got off it. And then I got re on it a, you know, a couple months ago and it's gone away again. So I feel much, much better. So, so I find it, that it makes a difference for me, you so know, not, not in one day, but you know, as I, as I, yeah. Do. Yeah. So this is something that you just use continuously now. Ba- yeah. I basically virtually every morning, whenever I take, you know, I take a bunch of stuff because you know, I'm interested in these things and, you know, uh, for longevity and, you know, I'm always trying to monitor, you know, different things that might be useful. Um, but I, I basically take the prebiotic in the morning. Well, and this much. is the thing that also contains the bacteriophage that kills that's, bad bacteria. Yep. That's and the it, one that I use. Yeah. And is that the type of thing where those, those phages that you're using, those viruses, they are killing bacteria that are going to be bad for anyone? For the most part. Yeah. I, yeah. I mentioned that like the personalization, I'm always, you know, I'm a scientist, so I'm, I, you know, I'm always a little hesitant to say always or never. Um, but in general, in general. Yes, they are targeted at, you know, at, at bacteria that we think of as being, you know, overwhelmingly likely to be negative. And the probiotics are, you know, we think are overwhelmingly likely to be positive. Mm-hmm. And so I never is- say everybody, but, you know, we think in the vast majority of people, that's true. And, and what is this product called? It's called Prebiotic Plus, and prebiotic it's plus. and it's a fusio by Thorn. So if you you know, it's again available on the Thorn.com website. And also, I just I'm I really like the disc. There's another disc I use quite a lot called Sleep Plus, mm. which if if I'm traveling or I need to get to sleep, and again, people you know can you know they'll have their own experiences. I had often taken melatonin pills in the past. Mm-hmm. I never felt like they did anything for me. Um, uh, you know, I'd usually go to something much stronger in that case, a drug where I was taking Ambien to like knock me out if I was going to Europe or something, I was just trying to get to sleep uh, off cycle. But this sleep plus that we've got uh, has really been great for me. It's a, uh, it's melatonin, L-theanine and uh, chamomile. And I don't, you know, I'm, Steve Phipps is the guy that really, um, you know, developed all that. Uh, but for me, I, you know, I, I it's a really like nice blueberry tea and, you know, and I drink that and it, you know, usually about 15 minutes later, I start feeling sleepy and it makes, it makes a difference for me. So that's, that's the other one. So I, those are the only two things we've got on these discs at the moment, but I, I really do love the discs because they're just there. I like, you know, their drinks rather than pills, which I prefer. And they, and, you know, they dissolve in there. They're good. So anyway. Interesting. Um, there's a couple of, a couple other areas I want to hit in the time we have left. So one is I want to talk about the general interfacing between metabolism generally and immunity and what the immune system's doing. Um, Because I know that there's a lot of connections there and I also don't know a lot about it. So I noticed that you guys did a study that had to do with COVID recently that you were a part of. And it looked like you basically took blood from people and you measured a bunch of stuff. And you seem to find um, some clear metabolic differences in the individuals that had more mild versus more severe COVID. Can you talk about what that was and what you were finding there? Yeah. So when COVID first, you know, really hit all of us, 
Uh, the person I've, I've got to give a ton of credit to here is Jim Heath, uh, who's the president of ISB. And Jim really just jumped into action in a major way. And, uh, and Lee Hood, you know, really connected uh, Jim in with, um, you know, people that he knew, uh, Roger Pulmeter in particular at, um, at Merck. And they really stepped up and, you know, they kind of did an emergency, like, you know, gave us a, a, a really nice grant to dive in and start studying this. And as an aside, I'll just mention that it, we've never seen like collaboration without IP constraints in the way that we saw right after COVID how everyone just sort of you know jumped in together and started working on things it was actually really beautiful in many ways uh, so Jim really got into that we started doing uh, this deep phenotyping that we talked about so we took COVID patients uh, from the Providence St. Joseph Health System which also mm -hmm. fantastic partners in all of this and started to delve in and make measurements of their metabolomes, their proteomes, a bunch of different clinical labs, really deep profiling of immune system. So including single cell uh, immune um, populations uh, that we were looking at, uh, particularly Jim. And what we found uh, that was interesting, and this was, uh, this was part of you know, what I've been interested in a while and part of my contribution was that if you looked at the metabolites, what we saw was that in people that had you know, moderate to severe COVID, there were sets of amino acids and lipids that were depleted to near zero that you didn't see in mild COVID. And the reason that that's interesting, this is actually related to uh, kind of a lot of how I, I think about you know, some of these areas now, which is that um, basically, you can never get away from the fundamentals in science like mass balance. And so if you have to fuel a major immune response, um, if you have to fuel a major immune response, mm -hmm. you have to build the building blocks. So you've got to have the amino acids, the proteins, the lipids, and so forth to build the cells. Yeah. But what we see is just that in the blood, you would see this massive depletion of the elements that you would need to do that because it's fueling this major immune response. So, so we became interested in the notion that, you know, maybe one of the problems that comes up is as you start ramping up this really severe response that you might actually hit up against nutrient limitations. Mm. Uh, and I'll just share kind of, you know, what really triggered me to start thinking about just that as a general topic, like separate from COVID, was just a little bit before COVID, the end of um, 2019, I guess, um, or I'm sorry, the end, yeah, um, end of 2019. It, um, I had given a keynote at Cornell in the precision nutrition meeting. And one of the women that was there who gave just a spectacular talk she had gone through these cases with mice and they, you know, I forget what it was. They gave them some terrible disease. They'd removed their hippocampus, but it fueled this big immune response. And what she showed was that these mice would metabolize away like something between 10 to 30% of their muscle mass in less than a week. Hmm. And they wouldn't do it if you supplemented them with one amino acid. And that just blew my mind because I thought, you know, what that's saying is that they are scavenging because they need that immune response to stay alive. They are scavenging for the, this one building block 
and they'll, so they'll decimate everything for it. They're basically digesting their own muscle mass just to get those components to fuel the immune response. Exactly. Exactly. And this is, this is a slight aside, but I'll just, I'll, I'll mention this, which is the week after that I had gone to uh, the Burroughs Welcome Fund to this uh, pregnancy uh, meeting. And, you know, it got us because we've launched, we're launching a couple of big clinical trials on this right now, which is um, actually what I spent most of this week talking about uh, at the, this uh, uh, pregnancy meeting at McGee Women's uh, for the last couple a uh, couple of days. But the other aspect is if you look at that kind of big metabolic perturbation, you know, which, which, you know, a woman, you know, growing a baby inside her is kind of the, you know, the biggest one that we have in just kind of our normal, um, our normal life. Then what that, what we can see there is there's probably a, the same thing has to happen. You have to have a recruitment of mm-hmm. all of these factors, all of these um, nutrients, just fundamental mass balance. So we're really doing this really deep dive study now over longitudinally uh, in pregnancy to look at if there are ways to mitigate certain negative outcomes, right? Problems that arise in pregnancy as a function of just monitoring what are the building blocks that you need optimally to make each next step in the baby's uh, evolution, you know, the baby's uh, development. You know, how do you actually do that anyway? So that was the backdrop. And then when we went into COVID, we started to see the same sort of phenomenon. And I only mention it because I think that a ton of disease um, comes back to metabolic factors in different ways as just a fundamental consequence of, you know, just mass energy balances. And the fact that you have to, you have to satisfy that basically all the time. Um, I'm actually quite convinced that Alzheimer's is mostly about this, which is another aside. And so, you know, there's, there's just a ton that uh, I think goes into this. And so it's one of the factors that can get left out and, uh, sometimes, but that's what we saw in COVID was just, you know, if you're, if you're really feeling these huge immune responses, you see this massive depletion of nutrients in the blood. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the first times we were able to see that in real, uh, stark, uh, timeframe. So in this sense, the, this sort of, um, metabolic depletion is a, it's not, it's probably not that people were like depleted in something already. And that's what made them susceptible necessarily, but like they're, they're progressing to more severe disease and their body's just sucking those things into the immune response to, to power everything. Ex- yes, exactly. That That's what I think. Okay. Interesting. Um, so what are, what were some of those, were there any particular metabolites? You mentioned some specific amino acids, which, which ones are we talking about? Uh, it was pretty, a pretty broad set. Um, I have to admit, I don't remember right off the top of my head exactly once, but the essential amino acids are the all ones. of the essential ones. Yeah. yeah basically. Interesting. Um, wow. Um, so I want to get into aging, um, because we don't have all that much time left and we, we could probably talk about, uh, any number of things here. So as we move into aging, um, well, first, can you just sort of define aging from a biologist's perspective? What exactly is aging? Yeah. Um, so from my standpoint, uh, so aging, and there's a, there's a particular graph that I really wish I could show <laughs> that uh, is related to Essentially, every year you get older, mm-hmm. there's an increase in the likelihood that you'll get a whole bunch of different diseases. Okay. 
And so as you monitor that, you know, as you go up, you know, it's more likely you'll get Alzheimer's, it's more likely you'll get heart disease, more likely you'll get diabetes. And to me, the slope of that, that curve is aging, basically. You know, and one of the things I don't, you know, I don't know if this will mean something to someone else or if it's just stuck in my brain because I learned it when I was young. But I remember when I was first studying engineering and there was a class and we went through and we talked about the concept that light bulbs don't age. And when we say light bulbs don't age, what do we mean? And the, what we mean is that if you have a 30-year-old incandescent light bulb compared to a one-year, there's exactly the same probability that they'll blow out because it's really mm -hmm. a function of the energy grid. It makes no difference. It's not getting older. It doesn't, mm -hmm. the filament doesn't, you know, it's not, it's not getting weaker. It's just a function of when you have a burst. So, you know, so you fast forward then into aging and we look at, but what's happening in our bodies is we do become more and more susceptible to breaking down. So if we talk about something, you know, fairly radical, like the end of aging, uh, and is that a possibility? To me, what the end of aging means, it would be to flatten that curve. And the reason I bring that up is that there's often, you know, is that I want to make it very clear that there's a huge, like enormous chasm between the end of aging and immortality, right? Immortality is like a whole other thing that we have no clue about. But the end of aging or the reduction of aging to me is just the lowering of that slope. The closer it is to, you know, if we ever achieve mm -hmm. zero to where it's just as likely that you'll get cancer at 80 as at 20, then that would mean that we have eliminated aging. Wouldn't necessarily mean we had eliminated cancer or eliminated anything else, that it would yeah. never happen. But it would mean that we're not progressively just getting higher and higher likelihood year after year. So to me, that, that's, that's how I think about that as a concept. And so to me, then the notion of reducing aging is very natural because there's no, you know, there's no reason to believe that, you know, we're somehow optimal or, or somehow, you know, fated to have this exact slope in the increase of our propensity for all these kinds of problems you know, that can be changed. In fact, has already been changed, um, right? People used to die when they were 30. And we don't, and we don't anymore. Anyway, there's a whole, whole, whole debate that we could get into there. But what I'm really interested in is to look at the different factors in hallmarks, you know, the hallmarks of aging, you know, as they're often referred to. And then what can we do that might have an impact on slowing aging? Because in animal systems, we know that there are a bunch of different molecules that if you give them to the animals, they live longer or they have, or they have an extended health span. They're healthier for longer, right? Sometimes you, you know, you're not extending the absolute end, but you're keeping them healthier for longer. And so what I'm really interested in is mapping as many of those as possible and making them available. So for example, uh, nicotinamide riboside uh, or NR is one that's been, you know, in the news a fair bit. Uh, and it relates to, elevated levels of NAD in, in your cells. And that is a substrate, you know, it's used for many factors, you know, it's the main redox um, uh, element in the body, but it also is used as one of the substrates for DNA repair. Uh, and through uh, a class of proteins known as the sirtuins, right? Which a number of people have studied and David Sinclair made very famous recently, uh, right? And so you can, and I actually do, take nicotinamide riboside. 
uh, and uh, you can do that. Um, you know, we sell, you know, various versions of that um, as do other people, uh, but that's, that's one that you can do at high quality. Now we don't know, we don't know that nicotinamide riboside will increase health span and lifespan in humans. We know that it does in animal models. We know that it increases NAD in the cells and we know that it's past safety. And so what I'm gonna, what I argue, at least for myself is that's kind of what I wanna know about the molecules because we won't know, in fact, if it, if it increases health, health span or lifespan for a while, right? Cause we live a long time. So we have to watch humans take it for you know, 20 years to actually yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, So we'll see that. Um, but that's an interesting one. Uh, another interesting one is uh, that people are running, there's a, a trial on metformin, right? That has positive aspects of uh, on metabolism and looks like it is also, you know, has this effect. And it's the same kind of thing. We know that it has this, uh, these positive effects on health span in animals. Uh, it seems to be pretty safe in, in humans. Uh, we actually use a, um, which I also take, which is a, um, a natural product analog of metformin called berberine. Uh, and so that's something that has uh, very similar effects, except it actually also has better effects on cholesterol. So what is metformin? So metformin is a diabetes drug mm. and people started looking at it. Uh, and I can't even remember the exact context, but someone noticed when they do these big meta-analysis that wait, people that take metformin when you look across clinical labs, uh, like electronic medical records and things like that, look good. Like diabetics on metformin get cancer at lower rates than people without diabetes. And so people started hmm. saying, hmm, you know, so there are a number of people that actually are interested in that as an anti-aging. Now it's a drug. So, you know, there's controversy associated with that, uh, but people are uh, evaluating and there's, I forget exactly what the acronym stands for. There's a uh, study called TAME, something, something metformin. <laughs> I can't remember what it is right now. Probably targeting aging through, uh, anyway, TAME study. And it's, um, you know, which is looking at this in a, in a population uh, because, you know, we see those effects in, in other cases. And if people don't want to do a drug, if you want to do a natural product analog, that's what I mentioned, like berberine is basically a lot like, and there's a lot of, uh, and you can dive into the scientific literature. There's a bunch of papers that uh, compare those things together uh, as they have kind of similar effects. The um, a quercetin is another one that I'm quite interested in. Mm -hmm. This is a class of molecules that are related to what are called senolytics, which are mm -hmm. that preferentially kill. So one of the other aspects of aging is you accumulate these senescent cells. Mm -hmm. uh, which mean that they're, they're not, you know, they're not, they're not growing. They're not, you know, they're not active, but they're, they're in senescence. And, you know, we thought that in the past, you know, they're just kind of inert, like, what does it matter? But it looks like they have negative effects. And then there are studies that suggest um, there's a few molecules, but quercetin is the one that I'm most familiar with that have been associated with being a senolytic. And there's a little bit of evidence both ways, but I, I, I think the preponderance of evidence is in, in favor. Um, there was so also a, Senolytic just means they, they kill off or destroy these senescent cells. Senescent cells. Yeah. So you can, you can reduce the senescent cells in your body. And so people think that that is good. And there's a whole bunch of people who are working on uh, trying to get drugs, you know, that might, you know, amplify that up. Uh, quercetin is a natural product. It's in food, you know, that is also a natural uh, senolytic. 
Uh, so there are elements like that. Uh, another drug that people are really interested in is rapamycin. Uh, again, controversial, uh, but there are doctors that are prescribing rapamycin for anti-aging effects. And what is it normally used for? Uh, it's normally used as um, an immunosuppressant. Mm. So the dosage that, you, that people do when they're trying to use it for longevity is much lower. And typically, I think you know, most people right now think about it as, because what, what rapamycin does is it targets uh, mTOR. In fact, mTOR actually stands for target of rapamycin. <laughs> That's what, how it was discovered and named. And so when, when you fast, you know, mTOR, when you, you know, mTOR cycles on and off as you go through like eating, fasting. So it's thought, you know, that with our ancestors going through, you know, hunting, hunting for food, finding, you know, kind of the feast famine kind of model that mTOR cycles naturally and that we've shifted it. So we kind of just have mTOR shut on all the time. And so when you look at the effects, you know, again, across lots of animal model systems, basically everything, everything that we've given rapamycin to lives longer. Hmm. Uh, so the suppression of mTOR seems to be really useful. And so, so I have a question here, actually. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so you mentioned that this was an immunosuppressant. We were just talking about COVID and metabolism immunity stuff. Now we're talking about aging stuff. Tell me. So this is this is my understanding, having listened to uh, a number of people in these different areas. Tell mm -hmm. me if, if you think this is accurate when, when we think yeah. about the immune system and how it might connect to aging. Basically, every time we have an immune reaction, every time there's an inflammatory response, um, let's say you get an infection, right? The body wants to get rid of it. So you have this, you have this immune response. There is inevitably collateral damage to the body in, in just in the normal process of fighting that infection. So anytime there's inflammation, there's collateral damage, even though the inflammation is trying to do something beneficial for you. So every time that you have an infection, or you get sick, that basically means you're going to take some of this collateral damage to your body and it's going to contribute to aging. So basically every time you get sick, even if it's fairly innocuous, it's just a little bit of sort of extra aging, a little bit closer you are to, to the end of the lifespan. Is that a reasonable way to think about the connection between inflammation and aging at a very, very high level? Yeah, I think, I think it is reasonable. You know, I don't know that all those little insults, you know, and inflammation are, you know, are not reversible. You know, mm -hmm. I wouldn't be able to say that like conclusively, but in general, we know that chronic inflammation adds massively to aging. So I think, you know, that thought process you're thinking through is, you know, seems like a reason, a reasonable one, uh, a reasonable one to me. And yeah. And so this, um, I don't necessarily think of the benefits of rapamycin as being associated with reducing inflammation. Mm. Uh, I think people have looked into that. I haven't, I haven't delved into that in a lot of detail, I have to say, uh, but this cycling of mTOR is definitely just, it comes up all the time. You know, there's these certain molecules that just come up all the time in aging and mTOR is massively one of them. And so the question is whether or not you can get something that is, you know, maybe like rapamycin, you know, like, you know, some sort of, you know, like a rapalog or something where you can, you could have, you know, an ability uh, to use that. But a lot of people are, are very bullish on it. You know, Matt Caberline at, at, U, at University of Washington has certainly been 
you know, one of the proponents of, you know, of rapamycin being a very promising molecule and so forth. So there are, so there's a huge amount of interest in this space. And it gets back to what I was talking about earlier, where if you're trying to do something from a prevention standpoint or from an, you know, an extension of health span, it's a very different proposition than, than a drug aimed at late stage disease, right? Because you've got to be so careful about, you know, what is, what's the side effect profile? What does it mean to take a drug that we tested for acute use? And now we're thinking about it for chronic use. By the same token, there are these tantalizing examples where you can test them. Like some of these molecules literally will, will increase health span when you give them to yeast cells, to worms, to flies, to mice. To, you know, so that, that implies that the mechanism at work here is so basic that it's just shared. It's like shared MCOR is very fundamental. NAD plus, as we talked about before, is very fundamental. You know, so, so you're talking about really conserved mechanisms in some of these cases. And so you know, whether or not we'll ultimately see, you know, major benefit from this. And then the other thing that really is, you know, and then whether or not it will have an impact on health span, or if it might even also have an impact on longevity, right? Is there, you know, and that, that always gets into be a little bit more of a question of, you know, how far out can that be, be pushed, you know, and there's a lot of people that feel like, you know, you can't push it much farther. And some people feel like, you know, so that's not true. And, you know, I don't think we really know, know the answer on those yet. Um, what about microbiome stuff here? Are there any connections between people who live especially long and microbiome composition? Yeah, I'm not aware of it in like for, doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but it's pretty recent that we've done big studies of microbiome and aging. Mm -hmm. uh, ours was one of the first, uh, Rob Knight did a big one. Uh, I think there was another one that just came out from a group uh, out of China, but it's been pretty few. Uh, there was a, a, a cohort that did these in elderly care uh, centers. Uh, you know, so there's been, there's been a few of these in aging uh, that people have looked at, uh, but I don't think we know the hallmarks of extreme longevity. Uh, we certainly, the, the uniqueness score we did, we did go up to people who were up in age to about 100. Uh, so we did do that, but I, I have not seen myself, the microbiomes of like super centenarians or people who are at the really late stage. Maybe it's just come out and I'm just revealing my ignorance on that topic. I should look that up. I'd be pretty interested in it, but uh, yeah, I don't know off the top of my head, like what, uh, you know, what would be the, the absolute aspects uh, related to extreme longevity there. So you mentioned, you mentioned this idea of mTOR cycling being related to metabolic cycles that might be, how would you say it? That might be sort of um, ecologically natural metabolic cycles. So if we think about our ancestors, they didn't live in the world that we, the world of abundance that we live in today. So they may have been uh, eating and fasting all the time in a kind of cyclical way, just because that was, that was life. So were some of those ideas connected to why people are talking so much these days about things like intermittent fasting, that when you fast, you're actually putting yourself into that kind of metabolic state that you mentioned? Yeah, that's exactly right. Because when you fast, you're essentially inducing this uh, uh, mTOR cycling uh, naturally. And so that's, you know, so some of these molecules are really sort of simulating, um, you know, that effect of, you know, getting your mTOR cycling up and down. 
so there is a lot of interest uh, certainly in that. And there's no doubt that you know our genes are pretty maladopted to our modern society. I mean, just take the obvious, you know, so if you take obesity as an example, right? We live in bodies that are that have taste receptors that are very prone to like things that are not good for them. Mm-hmm. Right. Which makes no sense. And then, um, and then we are, well, I mean, it makes sense in a historic concept. I understand where it comes from, but you know, but, you know, at some level, but, it, but if you were designing yourself to be optimal today, your body tries to hang on to every calorie it can find. Right. Which makes no sense in a modern society where you have essentially infinite calories at any moment of the day, right? It loses muscle mass very readily, right? It doesn't try to keep it because it's metabolically expensive. So it tries to get rid of it, right? So if you're not pumping iron all the time, as everyone knows, it goes away quickly. So there's all these kind of things that our bodies are set up for that are just maladopt- maladapted to the, uh, to the modern world and to the extent that we have it. So at some level, I think what we're really trying to do is figure out you know, how do we, how do we help our, you know, there's obviously all the lifestyle choices and all the things we can do to, you know, get ourselves in better, you know, better situations. And that's all obviously super important, but are there, are there ways that we can also, you know, try to deal with the biology as it is and make it easier for people to be able to, um, you know, kind of operate uh, healthy in, in our modern society. That, that would be a whole other topic, I guess, to dive in on. So. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to get going soon. And I know that you probably don't have that much time either. You know, we've covered, we've covered a fair amount on some big topics that, you know, we could probably spend hours and hours and hours talking about each one. But, you know, we talked about microbiome stuff. We've talked about metabolism, blood glucose stuff. We've talked about aging. You know, all of this is sort of wrapped in... Um, this exciting time we're in of personalized med- medicine and new technologies coming out and you know, pe- people being able to use technology to really understand and take a better hold of their own health. With all of that stuff in mind, is, is there any, any general recommendations or final thoughts you want to leave people with on how they can start to look into doing this kind of thing for, their own, for themselves? Uh, sure. Yeah. So if people are interested in this, um, you know, we've got, um, you know, uh, thorn.com, you know, all basically, I think every, you know, all the different molecules and things that we talked about are all available. I encourage people to do their, you know, their own research and understand, you know, how these things operate, but if people, you know, there are tests available that we've got a biological age test or the gut health test. Uh, there are uh, questionnaires, entry points, things of that nature. So if people are interested in this space and want to take action on, you know, either optimizing their gut health, uh, trying to uh, take a shot at increasing health span or any of those things, uh, they're all uh, very easily accessible, uh, easy to monitor and easy to do. Can you spell that out for people? Yeah. Thorne, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Excellent. Well, Nathan Price, thank you for your time. We, we covered a lot of interesting stuff, so I appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much. Appreciate it.